You are now listening to the July 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. Hello everyone, this is Terry Park, the host of our new program, A Christian Who Read Books. We are currently sharing C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. In this book, two devils appear, a seasoned devil named Screwtape and his nephew, a novice devil named Wormwood. Screwtape writes letters to his nephew to advise him on how to grow as a devil. There are 31 letters in total, and these letters make up the Screwtape Letters. Since this book is written from the perspective of devils, there are many things that need to be thought of in reverse. For example, the patient mentioned in the book refers to the person that each devil is responsible for, and the enemy the devil refers to is Jesus Christ. The devils feel that Jesus is taking people away from them, so they call him the enemy, and those who are committed to Jesus, their enemy, are referred to as patients. Of course our enemies are these devils. As the saying goes, know your enemy and know yourself, and you will be victorious. So, it would not be a bad idea to look at ourselves from the perspective of the devils and see how they operate. Foremostly, Screwtape emphasizes the need to prevent patients from meditating on God's Word and to entice them to live their lives without thinking too much. In the second letter, Screwtape outlines a strategy to ensure that patients do not ask serious questions or have progressive thoughts. What is this strategy? The opening sentence of the second letter from Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood goes like this. I was very displeased to hear that your patient has become a Christian. Although Screwtape starts with a tone of displeasure, he still does not give up on patients and suggests a strategy to retrieve the patient back to their side in the second letter. Then, Screwtape makes a critical comment. Encourage a Christian to use his feelings of disappointment or slackening of effort after he has turned to Christianity. Suppose there's a couple who's been married for a year. They loved each other so much, so they got married. Then they might begin to feel disappointments about each other. Suppose there's a young man who succeeded in getting a job after several years of training. When he realizes that his dream job is not as good as he thought, he would feel disappointed. In general, we feel disappointed when our efforts end up in vain or when we realize that our efforts are not enough. It is not unusual for us to experience this kind of disappointment in our lives. How about disappointments in church? You may have heard someone say, so-and-so is disappointed with the pastor and doesn't go to church anymore. Or, Deacon Kim was upset at Deacon Park. Or, that church on the hill is too cold and dry. Or, that newcomer who came last month, I haven't seen him lately. Oh, maybe the church atmosphere wasn't what he was looking for. When we hear these passing comments, what would be our reactions? Do we play along or do we brush it off? This is not about judging our reactions. Rather, we should talk about how Satan uses such feelings of disappointment that these passing comments may instigate. Satan meddles with disappointments that come from various life situations, but he is especially fond of using disappointments that arise between people. He presses us into trials, 
He makes us focus on the hurt we felt. He drives us to move to different church, and he tempts us not to go to small group meetings, all because someone we know that may or may not have done or said something that was offensive to us. Devils want to use disappointments to destroy the commandment that Jesus Christ emphasized the most, which is to love and share fellowship with one another. We have biases about the things around us, and these biases can be applied to the church and its members. For instance, we all dream of a perfect church and perfect Christians. We may even believe only those who meet the highest of the standards should come to the holy place to worship. In fact, we may look down on other Christians who seem less educated, poor, or lacking in graceful mannerisms. When we come to church to worship, we may feel uncomfortable sitting next to someone that smells of cheap perfume, causing us to sneeze. Or we are bothered by a choir member who is singing out of tune and messing up the harmony. The static from the loudspeaker may cause irritation, and so does the person in front who keeps looking at his cell phone while shaking his legs. If we focus too much on these things, we may not be able to concentrate on worship and may end up feeling distracted and confused. We may eventually become disappointed in the church, church life, and church members as a whole. About that specific patient Wormwood just lost to Christ, Tape advises Wormwood to take advantage of the disappointments of being let down that may come soon after becoming a new Christian. He says, Disappointment is a sign that appears when we try to put our ambitions, which we have kept only as dreams, into difficult practice in all aspects of life. In other words, if we don't try anything, we won't be disappointed. No expectations, no disappointments. Screwtape reminds that Jesus Christ allowed disappointments to come whenever human efforts to cross the threshold. Have you ever tried to get along with other church members or tried to love them well? Have you ever been enthusiastic about a small group meeting, thinking that you will go through it and be able to serve others as well? However, before you know it, you might have discovered the obvious faults in others and how disappointment sets in. Do you feel like church meetings are currently stagnant? Do you feel uncomfortable meeting certain members? If we overcome such disappointments, we will not be swept away by our emotions and will not fall into the temptation of the devil. Please consider the following excerpt in the letter that Uncle Screwtape wrote to his nephew, Wormwood. I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots, a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. All you then have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has to run up a very favorable 
credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church. At bottom, he still believes he has to run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Screwtape advises his nephew Devil to prevent our faith from growing by trapping us in mutual disappointments, disclosing, and refocusing on shameful things we try to hide and getting us to stay in that state of disappointment. That was their strategy. If you feel disappointed in other Christians and are struggling because of it, please consider carefully whether this might be the strategy of the nephew devil working on you. And rather than the whispers of the devil, please listen to the words of the Bible written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. These are the words of Galatians 6, 1-2. We utter negative things to ourselves when we are disappointed. The marriage life I dreamed of is not this. The spiritual life I imagined is not this. The church I want to serve is not this, etc. While we may feel disappointed in things we once cherished, we should not allow this emotion to fuel our egos. Disappointment is an emotion that can be felt in all areas of life, but if we leave it unchecked, it can become Satan's trap. When doubts about faith and church arise because of a few disappointments, we must realize how much of a hole Satan has created in our hearts through his manipulation. He would chuckle and say that it was us that created the hole and he only put his finger in the hole. By meditating on how much of a sinner I am, I can overcome disappointments and be thankful for the grace of salvation. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. And 1 John 4 11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We will continue with Screwtape Letters next time.
Up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is the Gentle Messiah. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So as I read about the life of Christ, there are certain things that I see in Jesus, things that he said and did that really resonate with me more than others. And I would venture to guess this is the case for many of you, if not all of you, as well. And I suppose this is to be expected because Every one of us is wired a little bit differently, and we come from different backgrounds. Some of us love to travel. Some of us are homebodies. Perfect example. So we're going to see in Christ things that are easy to relate to and things that we find harder to relate to. Let me give you an example. And I was talking to Tina about this message this week. I love the table-flipping Jesus that we read about in the Bible. Amen? Willing to move some furniture in order to make a point? I like that Jesus. He's awesome. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I get this, Jesus. I like this, Jesus. Not afraid to toss some furniture to make a point. Or take this Jesus, who's willing to stand up to powerful people who are acting like hypocrites. I love this Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 23 says to the, the, the religious leaders, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Again, I like this Jesus, alpha male Jesus, not afraid to stand up to powerful people and call a spade a spade. Let me give you one last example of a Jesus that I love. It's the laser focused Jesus that doesn't put up with any nonsense and is willing to just to say what needs to be said at that time. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I love this Jesus. He is a man on a mission, laser-focused, unwilling to put up with any nonsense. I like this side of Jesus that I read in the scriptures, right? The table moving, furniture tossing, standing up to corrupt people, laser-focused Jesus that's willing to call a spade a spade and say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. I get this Jesus. Now, the reason I tell you this is today we are going to be looking at a prophecy in the Old Testament which foretells of the coming Messiah in terms that no one saw coming. Precisely because it foretells of a Messiah who's going to be, embrace yourself for this, incredibly meek, mild, kind. It foretells this. So church, it's on this note. It is my honor to take us to the word of God today. Here a prophecy given 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God this morning. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He loud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Amen. Hear the prophecy concerning Christ 700 years before he ever set foot on earth. Now, here's the deal. If this prophecy, it's four verses, if this prophecy ended just at verse one, it would be a prophecy that would be somewhat easy to understand and accept. Listen to what it says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So in one verse, no less than six different descriptions of the Messiah are rattled off in rapid fire. And when taken together, they paint a picture of somebody who's pretty special. If I had never read or knew about the coming Messiah, and I just read this one verse, I'd go, this guy's going to be a stud. This guy's going to be, this person is going to be amazing, this servant of the Lord. Just look at the first four descriptions. He is described as God's servant. That's a great honor. One whom God upholds personally. Wow. He is chosen by God. And he is one in whom God sold the lights. Again, if I didn't know anything about the coming Messiah and I just had this one verse and I read those first four descriptions, I'm going, this person is going to be someone special, someone amazing. But it gets even more interesting because it says that I have put my spirit upon him. This is going to be a man that has God's anointing. God's spirit is going to be upon him. And if you know anything about Isaiah, this is a reoccurring theme about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 11.2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, this guy's going to be awesome. But then we also read other passages. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That is the coming Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Interesting. Regardless, this man was going to have the spirit of the Lord upon him. 
and will certainly have no fear of what stands before him. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be an amazing Messiah, a conqueror, a leader of leaders. If all I had was this one verse, I like what I read, which leads to the last description. It says this, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. When the Messiah shows up, everyone, and I mean everyone, better look out because he is going to impact the world. He's my Messiah and he's awesome. God's spirit is upon him and he's bringing justice to the nations. Look out. Again, I like verse one. But as we know, this prophecy doesn't end here. And it's in the remainder of this prophecy that the paradigm shifting, mind blowing part of this prophecy comes to light. And that is because it foretells of a Messiah who is exceedingly meek and mild and gentle. A prophecy that finds its fulfillment in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Church, hear the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Again, hear the word of God. He, Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him, that is Jesus. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then they said, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Amen. Church, I present to you the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. So again, for people like me, who like the table-turning, hypocrite-confronting, laser-focused Jesus that we read about, this side of the Messiah is a little bit difficult. It's a little bit tougher pill to swallow. So why? Well, let's look at the passage. It says, verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Folks, this is in direct opposition to what many thought the Messiah would actually be. Many thought the Messiah would be someone whose voice would be heard in the streets. He would be easily recognizable because it was assumed that he would be a charismatic, strong, dominant type of leader the type of person that could easily gather an army to himself, who can inspire people to action and who would proceed forth as one to conquer. This is the Messiah that people were expecting. But both Isaiah and Matthew make it abundantly clear. He won't cry aloud in the street. You won't hear his voice. Not surprisingly, Isaiah, other prophecies speak to this very thing. Listen to Isaiah 53. For he, that is this coming Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant. And like the root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was so inconspicuous that he often stood in the presence of people who had absolutely no clue who they were talking to. 
Imagine talking to the Messiah, God in the flesh, and not even knowing it. The woman at the well in John 4 is a really good example of this. Had Jesus not told her point blank, I'm the Messiah, she would have had no clue. Just look at it. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus is like, oh, by the way, (laughs) Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Many other times, Jesus explicitly told people not to reveal his identity. Remember when he healed the leper? And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as proof to them. Question, what kind of Messiah keeps his identity hidden? Answer, a Messiah whose kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was king of a kingdom that was quietly conquering the hearts of men and women one at a time. This was a Messiah that did not come to overthrow the Roman Empire. He came to overthrow the bondage of sin that held people captive. Amen? He was king of a kingdom that was in the midst of people and they didn't even see it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus was a Messiah like unlike anyone ever expected. He was king of a kingdom that did not come with force. It was a kingdom that conquered not political foes, but spiritual foes. It conquered the hearts of men and women one at a time. But then we read two other details in this prophecy that are truly astounding. Let me read it to you again. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Again, I like that part of this prophecy, but then it says, but he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not quench. What in the world? What in the world is being said here? Well, reeds in ancient times were used for many purposes. Shepherds, for example, would often take reeds and make flutes out of them, and they would play their flutes for their animals, either to calm them down or to lead them. But once a reed became damaged in some way, it was snapped in half, thrown away, trampled underfoot. It was worthless at that point. And I was trying to think of a modern-day equivalent, because we don't really use reeds. Like, you know, we buy pens and pencils, and we know how things are made for us, right? The best example that I could think of, modern day example, is when you go out to a restaurant and they no longer give you the plastic straws, but they give you the paper ones. You know what I'm talking about? And about four sips in, it's soggy and it's like, ugh, you know, best I could do, folks, with all of my brain power. That's the best modern day analogy I can give you. The point of this part of the prophecy is simple. Bruised reeds represent bruised and hurting people. People who would otherwise be considered worthless and of no value by society, tossed aside and trampled underfoot. Who will they find the Messiah to be? Not a Messiah who will toss them aside or trample them underfoot, but rather someone who will be gentle with them and kind to them. He won't bruise them further. He won't break them. He won't toss them aside. He will bind them up. He will strengthen them. 
And see, this is the side of Jesus that's harder for me. I love telling the truth, but we got to tell the truth in grace, in love, right? I love the truth side. So just out of curiosity, how many of you in here are truth people? It's easier for you just to tell the truth. How many of you are grace people? You're probably the people that like to travel too, I know, I'm sure. It's always the grace people that get to me. Yeah, but you can see the contrast. We tend to, I like to travel, I don't like to travel. I like grace, I like truth. And we tend to go to these extremes, and I do all the time. And that has a real important bearing for all of us. And I'm going to tell you that in just one second. Because in this passage, we're also told about a smoldering wick. Once a wick of a lamp is burned down, it becomes so worn out and so small that it is barely able to stay lit and give any light. You all know this, that light candles, right? You light a candle and it burns down and it gets that last little nub, right? And it's flickering and there's no heat. There's barely any light. It's about to go out. It's worthless at this point. The only thing you can do is snuff it out and throw it out at that point. Jesus's point is clear. The point of this prophecy is clear. People who have been worn down by the hardships of life, who are just hanging on by a thread, who have just a little flicker of life left in them, whose society would normally say that person's got nothing left to give, toss them out, trample them underfoot, throw them away. They will not find Jesus to be someone who snuffs them out or tramples them underfoot or tosses them aside. Rather, someone who gently cares for them, who fans their flame back to life. That is who they will find the Messiah to be. And that's the Messiah that I find hard because I love truth. Now, the prophecy ends this way. It says this, until he brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So earlier it said he will bring justice to the nations. And I'm like, yes, that's the Messiah I love. He's going to let the world have it. But then I read, wait a minute, the justice he's going to bring is going to cause the Gentiles to hope in him. So maybe I don't understand the justice that's being talked about here. And that's precisely because the justice that is being talked about here, it's not judgment. It's a redeeming justice. The Messiah will be not only good news for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, because he will bring a redeeming justice to the world. Of course, we know in full what those living back then only knew in part, and that's this. The Messiah would come into the world and lay his life down, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And as such, he will be a Messiah to the whole world that anyone, no matter who they are, what their background might be, how damaged they might be, how wounded and bruised and hurting they might be, even if they have no life left in them, but just a flicker of life left in them, they, even they can call upon this Messiah and find him to be somebody that will receive them. Amen? Amen. Now, regarding this prophecy, the great Matthew Henry, pastor and theologian, said this, and while encouraged by the gracious kindness of our Lord, We should pray that his spirit may rest upon us and make us able to copy his example. In other words, may God's spirit rest upon us so that the world would find us, those of us who are Christians, people, if they come to us, we won't trample them underfoot or toss them aside, but they will find us to be people who will encourage them and build them up and lift them up. And this is where the rubber hits the road. So are you ready? Brace yourselves for what I'm about to say. It's exactly why I said earlier, there are things about Jesus in the Bible I get, I understand, I love. Other things, not so much. And it is the gentleness and meekness that I often struggle with. And here's how. We are living in a day and age where the world is crazy. Do I hear an amen? 
The world is crazy. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to be gentle and kind with the people of this world. I want to beat the heck out of them with the truth. And don't judge me because many of you are just like me. I saw you raise your hands earlier. Are you with me? I don't necessarily, I see what's going on in the world and I'm like, what is wrong with you people? You're so, ah. I want to take my huge Reformation study Bible and I've got a huge one in my office. Honestly, it weighs about 10 pounds and I want to help people learn by osmosis, if you know what I mean. (laughs) In other words, I don't want to read the Bible to them. I want to hit them over the head with it and shove it down their throat so that they understand what I see, what I so clearly see. That's why I say, I get this Jesus. And I, that's why I, when I preach, I think many of you like, I, I tend to preach on this side of the aisle, which is all truth and a little bit hellfire and brainstorm at times. And people are like, yeah, we love that, Bill. Go for it. It's because I like being over there. But it's over here. Those of you that raised your hand that you're gentle, meek, and mild, you like that side of Jesus, you probably struggle with some of my preaching at times. And I get it. Jesus, there, listen, there is a time in which we as Christians need to be strong and courageous and bold. We see that in Jesus. There's times when we have to be over here and be strong, but we can't lose sight of the fact that the Messiah that came into the world was so gentle, so kind, that the most hurting and bruised people in the world could come to him and find him to be a Messiah that would not tear them down further, toss them aside or trample them underfoot. He would be a Messiah that would build them up and encourage them. And if there's anybody in this room that needs to hear that, it's me. It is me. Listen to this passage, folks. If ever there were a passage for this generation right now, here it is. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but here's the tough part, kind to everyone. Even those people out there that are making crazy decisions, I don't understand, I don't get it. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. So I got news for you. When I turn on the news and I see evil, my fuse is about that long. And yeah, yeah some of you are here. So a lot of you are more righteous than me. Your, your fuses are a lot longer. Mine's not so long. It doesn't take much before I start yelling at the TV screen. And I'm not yelling nice things. I'm not yelling scripture. <laughs> Patiently, long-suffering. That's what the word patient means, long-suffering. Being long-suffering, enduring evil, correcting his opponent's with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Listen to this. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Like I said, if ever there were a verse, when you look at the world today, what are you seeing? You are seeing people that are ensnared by the devil. We are seeing that hand over fist everywhere we go. What should be our response? Well, my response is I want to be the table throwing in your face, confronting Jesus, your crazy type of, I want to be that Jesus. And again, there's a time and a place for that. But I can't lose sight of that's not necessarily what the world needs all the time. What the world needs is they need to look at Christians and go, who are you? And the answer is, I'm somebody that you can come and find hope in. That you're somebody that can come here and I won't tear you down more, but I'll build you up and lift you up because that's exactly what my Savior did to me and I'm called to do for you. So if ever there were a verse, I think it would be this one. Of course, there's other verses. I mention this verse all the time because one of my seminary professors made us memorize it, but 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, 
but do this with gentleness and respect. And I'll say this, and I think most of you would agree with me, the word respect is lost on our society today, isn't it? That nobody has respect for anybody anymore. We don't have respect for those in authority. Many people don't have respect for their parents. There's just a lack of respect. What that means, when the world looks at the church, they should find a gentle, respectful people. And like I said, when you come to this church, I tend to preach over here. And if you're new to the church and it's your first time, you're going to go, that's not a very gentle or respectful pastor. And there are times when, I, when I've gotten out of the pulpit and I've listened to what I said, and I'm like, mm, you're right. <laughs> and that's because I got to remember there's another side of Jesus, the gentle Messiah who came with a compassionate heart and gentle hands that the most wounded in society could come to him and find hope in him. Let me ask you a question. The Bible says this, let your gentleness be evident to all. Here's a tough question. Those that know you best, would they describe you as gentle? Uh, (laughs) If I could read some of your Facebook posts, would you be described as gentle? Now I'm really touching a nerve, huh? If I could read some of your text messages, would you be described as gentle and kind and meek? I'm telling you, there's some text messages I would never let you see because I'm not so gentle and I'm not so respectful when I've got my gun out and I've got my crosshairs out. How about this one? Colossians chapter four, verse six. Let your speech always be gracious. My speech isn't always gracious. You want to know why? Because those people out there don't deserve grace. Thank you, God, that you gave it to me, but they don't deserve it. Am I right? I mean, Lord, come on, they are way worse than I ever was. Oh, is that a fact? It's it's just the irony is that I will let God shower me with grace. But the second he says, go show grace to people that are bound up in sin. And I'm like, no, they don't deserve grace. They deserve the truth. And I'm going to hit them so hard, they're not going to know what happened. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And you know what that tells me? It means that you deal with people as individuals, how you should answer each person. It means that we as Christians have a discerning spirit that when we're in conversations with somebody, we realize that somebody isn't the same as that somebody, and this somebody might need something a little different than that somebody, and that we're always being discerning as Christians. And again, don't get me wrong. There is a time in which Christians need to be strong, where we need to confront those that are in hypocrisy and do bold and courageous things like Jesus did. Jesus did it perfectly. He balanced all of those things perfectly. The problem with somebody like me is I get excited and the pendulum not only swings here, but it swings way over there. And I'm out there, I'm having a great time, except I'm hurting a lot of people when I'm out way over there. The pendulum's out over there. And then there's some of you, the pendulum's over here, but you let the pendulum go way over there. And you need to swing it back because there is truth that you need to tell to some people in your life. There is some strength that you do need to show at times and you haven't shown that. And that's why I say this is the difficulty of being a Christian is that we see in Jesus perfection and we go, ah, the Holy Spirit in me, help me to be like that. And the pendulum is swinging. The pendulum is swinging. And the question is, can we keep the pendulum right where it should be? Again, there's probably not a person in this room right here that needs to hear this message more than me. I am the type of person that finds it far more easier to beat people over the head with the truth and shove it down their throats than to be patient, kind, and gracious towards them. But patient, meek, and mild is the very life that I have been called to, and it's the life that you have been called to. Folks, we are living in a time in which people are being incredibly mean, hateful, and disparaging to one another. 
The internet, I told you this before, all the internet has done is revealed the depths of darkness in people's hearts. <laughs> all of us. We are a mean-spirited, angry, fallen people that when given the opportunity, we will rip people to shreds online. I don't know that we'd ever do it in person. Have you seen the two dogs? They say there's a, a video clip where two dogs are separated by a gate and they're barking at each other bark, and the gate pulls back and they stop barking. I think that's how most people would be if we took the internet away and we put people face to face, they would stop being so mean and cruel, right? But because that gate is there, people are just mean and cruel. But what that means, folks, is we have an incredible opportunity as Christians to minister to this world with a compassionate heart and gentle hands so that when the people of this world go, you know what, it's brutal out there, and they look here, they see something different. And again, no one needs to hear this more than me. So again, the Bible says the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So I finished with a simple question. How might your gentleness be evident to all? Is there somebody in your family, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody at your place of work that has been given a lot of truth and has been beaten up by this world and who doesn't need necessarily more truth, doesn't need more beating up, but needs just somebody with a gentle hand, a gentle heart that will come alongside them and minister to them.
You're now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting Google, Play Store, or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's program on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You're in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. We know that He loves us so greatly that we're children of God, loved us so much, that He sent His Son for us. The reality, it's so wonderful. We abide in God and in Him because, as we'll see, because of Christ. You're safe in His hands. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. You're safe. You're in God our Father. You're relationally in Him. And then He talks about, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, is significant. It's used Nine times, and there are variants of it throughout the book. Nine times in three short chapters, Lord Jesus Christ. The term Lord speaks of deity, the I am. The term Jesus is his human name. It was given to him when he came to earth. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall set his people free from their sins, or they shall be forgiven from their sins, right? You see that? He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. The term Jesus, Yahshua, means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Yeshua. You'll name him the Lord saves. Whenever you think of the name Jesus, his human name means the great I am saves. He's the great I am who saves. Jesus. And then we have the term Christ, which speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah, the one from the Old Testament prophesied who would reign forever and ever, who would have to suffer first, Isaiah 53, then to die for our sins, then be glorified. He's the anointed king who came and died for our sins. He's the Christ. And so we are also in Jesus Christ. We are in him relationally. What does that mean? Well, it's speaking of being in Christ, it essentially describes what it means to be saved. You see, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You were redeemed. The payment for your sin was paid. You were baptized, not in water, but spiritually. You were placed into the body of Christ in union with Jesus Christ when you believed. You were set apart in him, sanctified. And the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart, Christ in you. You became his possession, bought with a great price, the precious blood of the Lamb. Thus you've been set apart from sin unto God through Christ. It's all about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in him. You're safe in him. And in Christ, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're related to him. You're connected to him. We are put in union with his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why would he need to tell him that? Why would he need to tell him that? Because they're suffering. And when you're suffering, you need to know where you stand with the Lord. You need to be reminded that you're in God the Father. He loves you. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are protected. No matter how bad the persecution becomes, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is our life. So when times are tough, do you realize you've been saved by Christ? You're in Him. You're protected. You're united to Him. Don't forget that. Well, now notice here, he now gives his greeting. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very simple salutation. Some say it's just a mechanical salutation that someone would say, grace to you, grace to you, whatever it might be. But it's not in light of the Spirit of God writing it through the Apostle Paul. It's a common greeting of him, but there's meaning behind it. In every epistle or letter that Paul writes, except First and Second Timothy, and ten to be exact, he has the exact same greeting. Grace to you and peace. And then in Titus 1, it's grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. This is God's desire for the Thessalonian church. This is God's desire for you and me if you're a grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. We need to know that. Well, what is grace? Grace, the word charis, in its basic form speaks of an unearned gift. It speaks of unearned favor. Unmerited favor, nothing that's done. And in scripture we see that it's none other than an attribute of the living God. First Peter 5.10 speaks of the God of all grace. God's merited favor towards mankind is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of unmerited favor towards his people and truth. Unmerited favor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. His grace brought about him coming to die for our sins. And that's what Titus chapter 2 says. We heard it read earlier. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. You see, grace sums up the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's by grace. So then, God's grace is what God does for every sinful man through his son Jesus Christ that he cannot earn, does not deserve, and will never merit. And if you receive his grace, you are saved. If you accept his grace, he died for your sins and rose from the dead. You didn't deserve it. And you turn to Christ and believe in him. By his grace, you'll be saved. So we begin our relationship by grace. It's all God, nothing of us. And it's his favor upon us. But guess what? God wants us to walk in that grace, to function in that grace on a daily basis. You might remember in Romans chapter 5 that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through having been justified, but also we've obtained our introduction, our privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in a relationship in which it's all by grace. Every minute. And Paul says, grace to you. That you would function by his grace all the time. By his unmerited favor, his strength, rather than your own strength. 
The Apostle Paul truly did that. I read this earlier, but let me just read it again for you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, And I'm the least of all, for I was untimely born. It says, I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But notice what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even all the more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Christ. Christ in you, functioning in your life. That's God's grace manifest. Relying on Jesus. Allowing him to work through you. Trusting in Jesus. And Paul says, grace to you. In first and second Peter, where second Peter we see, may God's grace and peace be multiplied. You may be multiplied. May you trust in Christ more and more and more. May you function by his grace more and more and more. Because we have the privilege to stand in that grace. John 15, we know that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But when we trust Jesus, his grace abounds in our lives. God wants that for you. And what gets in the way of that? Trusting in yourself. Relying on your own wisdom. Believing your own understanding rather than what God says. Second Corinthians 3, 5, I love this verse. Not that we are adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves. Now you could stop there and have a pity party, but no, keep reading. He says, but our adequacy comes from God. When I trust Christ, I'm fully adequate to do everything he calls me to do. And when I fail, I confess he's fully adequate to forgive me. He's a gracious God. What did the Lord say to the Apostle Paul when Paul wanted that thorn removed from his flesh, that spiritual thorn in a sense? He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in weakness. Don't cry about your weakness. Thank God for it. Because now you're going to trust the Lord. And it's all Christ. So back in our passage, grace to you. God wants that for you as a believer, to function by his grace, to not forget that. You were saved by it, functioned by it. As we received Christ by faith, by his grace, so walk in him. But notice he also says peace. And the reality is we need peace. Our hearts can be troubled a lot over all kinds of stuff that happens, especially if you think about the future, whatever might happen, it can be troubled. But see, peace is the result of grace. You will never have peace until you've encountered the grace of God. You see, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ by his grace, you don't have peace. There's no peace for you. But if you trust in Christ, we have peace with God positionally. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God. Peace. That's positional peace. No longer enmity. We have a relationship. We're in God and in Christ Jesus. But there's also peace when we trust in him as we walk. And you see, that only happens when we're relying on his grace. If you have no peace, that's because you're not relying on Christ. You see, Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, grace and peace doesn't come from worship. Grace and peace doesn't come from going to church. Grace and peace doesn't come from serving. doesn't come from a book. Where does it come from? What's our passage say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from God through Christ. If you want to have peace, rely on him. Let his grace function in your life. and You will have peace. That's God's will for believers. He doesn't want you to flounder around in fear. So often, Scripture, do not fear. 
Believe what he says. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I'll help you. Surely I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Grace to you and peace. Are you lacking peace? Well, maybe you've never experienced the grace of God. And that comes when you're willing to humble yourself and recognize you're a sinner, as God says so, and he has a right to judge you, and he will judge you. But he poured out his wrath on his son instead, and he offers you salvation by his grace. And if you're willing to accept what he says about you and about him and trust in him, you'll be saved. And then once we're saved, we have the privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. And we have a choice to stand in it and rest in it or walk away from it and have lack of peace and all the trouble. If we let God's word permeate our hearts, we believe what he said, we trust in him, you're going to have peace because you're functioning by his grace. You try to do things on your own or you try to think of a future on your own without God in control, you're not going to have peace. You look at the future in light of what God says, you're going to have peace. You look at your present in light of what he says and trust him, you're going to have peace. So grace to you, and that's how he starts it. That's what he wants for us. So what do we really need? We need his grace on an ongoing basis, his favor towards us, and we receive that in faith when we trust in him. And we need his peace. That's the result. And that's his desire for you.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.